Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning. Happy Thursday. Cam, did you hear in Phoenix, Arizona, that half of the people in hospital right now are there because they fell on the concrete? Yeah, it's 40. It's been, I saw, it said 46 feels like 48 when I checked. I still have it pinned on my weather app from when we were down there in the, in the winter time. And it honestly is incomprehensible that anything can get that hot. But 48 degrees Celsius? Mm. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so we would have been in big trouble if it was 48 degrees Celsius when we were there. Not to get into details, but... For sure. <laughs> um, it might have helped me sweat out a few things, but I think that... <laughs> exactly, yeah. um, I think that my group chat, my family group chat, which is generally more progressive than perhaps our group chat with... Our friends, the peer group, yeah, yeah, is very concerned about global warming again. Mm. I will say to my wife that if she is so concerned, which I think she is genuinely concerned about, you know, we have a child, we're worried about the climate, the future. She should stop buying stuff online and shipping it via airliner to our house. That would be good for the environment to stop. Well, we just need those drones, right? Right, because the drones are on battery power bang all good <laughs> solved yeah um you don't need to mine anything <laughs> for that right <laughs> there's a lot of work that needs to be done i think to to help satisfy some of our guilt but generally speaking it's not looking awesome when you take into consideration the this was the hottest month on human record across the globe mm-hmm. july was so that is terrifying yeah some of those predictions are maybe coming to fruition for sure i think that combined with all of the i think similarly to the i I mean i'm no i'm no expert on this so let's let's definitely stay on the edges here but i mean the amount of it seems like we talked about from the economic perspective over the last three four years we talked about all these once in a lifetime events and then you have all these once in a lifetime weather events happening that seem to be happening way more often it's definitely another challenge and something else that's going to be affecting things going forward from an economic perspective as well i think it's a consideration i think that's one thing that you had shared with me i think another from your fave guy bob elliott talking about um 
interest rates and and whatnot. I know you want to dive into that a little bit. I know we just had another quarter point raise yesterday from the from the Fed meeting, and I'm sure there's. I, I know there were some interesting tidbits in terms of the the narrative. Of you, you've always stressed this that the the announcement is is one part, but then the the press conference after with with Jerome Powell is almost more important in terms of understanding what the rhetoric and what the thought process is going forward. So I think we will dive into that too, but it is funny how sometimes the, uh, the effect on the, it's it's truly amazing to see the, the macro of how it can affect your portfolio. So things like weather events and the, the cause of those things to, I think I think one of the articles you shared this week is talking about the effect of El Nino on yeah. the on on the on the rhetoric behind supporting why something might have gone up in cost or the ri- rising food costs. So if obviously if you have crops that are decimated by inclement weather patterns for a 18 month period, then that hits your wallet, and you don't think about those kind of things. No, 100. percent I mean, so what. Let's get into the Bob Elliott stuff first. I think we don't want to talk about Arthur Burns and his and how. um, (laughs) So he was the former uh, chair of the Federal Reserve back in the uh, 70s, I think it was. Yeah, Yeah. which was obviously a tough time where he had massive amounts of inflation. um, And he had drawn some. Basically, the weather caused a lot of price inflation. pressure yeah. in commodities, which then drives inflation. Makes a lot of sense. It's just funny to go back and look at past history and issues that were occurring then, what they um, drew as the reasoning for why we had inflation mm-hmm. and how similar it is to today. So um, you'd brought up Bob Elliott, and, and he's been really great throughout this whole entire whatever inflation yeah i can't i can't uh stress enough again for someone who would be very like on the moderate scale of of following this stuff and obviously like i've I've said before being on this podcast every week is is my kind of deep dive into things but as a follow like he he sets things up so well and is pretty eloquent in in how he lays things out and so I can't stress enough how, how great of a follow he is for well, sure. Well, yeah, he even circles things on charts for... for and highlights things. Pretty oh. good visual. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> um, and for those that maybe don't know who he is, he is a... Or he runs a fund of funds, um, but he used to be the chief investment officer at the largest hedge fund in the world. Very um, intelligent guy. He had a video that I think more people should listen to. He's starting to do some more podcasting. Mm. Um, so check that out. But... In this thread, he said that there's a few things that are that the market isn't seeing, or at least that he's disagreeing with. So he keeps reminding everyone that the the most important thing for the Fed and for the Bank of Canada has been the employment market, or shouldn't say market, but employment rate, mm-hmm. and it's still insanely tight. That means that he, you're not seeing people getting laid off, which is what the Fed wants to see because they don't want to see a continued inflation in wages. Wage inflation causes price inflation and demand for goods. They want to kill demand for goods, at least to the point in which um, prices stop going up. Very tough to do if people keep making more money. Now, this isn't to say that they want people to stop making more money. They want it. They want it. They don't want people to be making more money. They want it to be balanced. Price of goods. It just wants to be balanced. It needs to be um, stable, that they can predict it, 
that way the economy can get back to normal. So now what he's pointed out is that the market, based on how it's priced right now, is pricing in 12% earnings growth going into 2023, 24, um, and then a five rate cuts in 24. And that is a lot, given the fact that they continue to talk about how huh, hawkish they are, the fact that they're not done um, the fight with inflation. The market doesn't buy it right now. You, you, you take a look at the VIX, and it's sitting at 13, 12.93 as of this podcast, and you just had a rate increase from the Federal Reserve, and the market just isn't believing them anymore. Mm-hmm. They've effectively said, we think that you've won. We see there as being a, and you go and you, you listen to, last week we had all the banks reporting earnings, and they on all of their calls they talked about how um, the, the medium-sized businesses are not seeing the recession that a lot of market participants were predicting last year as they sold off stocks down 25, 30, 35%. They're seeing a soft landing. It's clear that the, the economy is still strong, the consumer's still strong, employment's still strong, so they're not super worried. Now, that's being priced into stocks, but it's tough to see what the Fed wants to accomplish. It's long been said by um, investors that you don't fight the Fed. Right now, it seems like investors are fighting them, telling them that they're full of crap, and they're not scared. So I'm not here to tell you which way it's going to go, because I don't know. But I do believe that all of these more, most recent increases are vanity increases. They're filling their, their monetary gun up, and they're going to shoot them as they need it on the way out and on mm-hmm. the way down. So, Yeah, rather, mean, rather than getting ahead of it, letting that lead. Well, I, I think he's saving face. In, in, the, in the case of Jerome Powell, he, needs to, um, he recognizes that he didn't increase rates fast enough back in 21, 22. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to be the guy who let off the, the, let off the gas, the proverbial gas on, on raising rates um, as the economy is still pretty strong because mm-hmm. he hasn't seen any cracks yet. So with the exception of the, the banking crisis that we had in the first quarter of this year, I think that we're at a point where um, he can almost claim victory. I know market participants have, investors have. Um, but he's being extra cautious because he has to save face. Mm-hmm. He has a reputation to maintain. So where are we going? Um, right now, we're this, this month or this week, sorry, we have earnings season, but big tech is, is reporting. We had Google and, uh, and Microsoft out last week or la- yesterday and the day before. And Google blew the doors off. Amazon had kind of a mixed bag, but... Generally speaking, it supports the fact that the stock's up 40, 50% this year. Mm-hmm. Um, these big tech companies are dragging everybody up, and they're doing a phenomenal job of growing and expanding their businesses in the face of what is a pretty competitive market. So I feel bad. You have 494 companies in the S&P 500 that nobody cares about because right now the only thing that matters is seven businesses and it's it's sad to think that we've gotten to the point where there's only these businesses that matter, but they're doing well. And from an investor's perspective, if you're not overweight them, like in my my role, it's you're getting smoked. Imagine just being a small 
medium-sized or even large cap um, growth investor mm-hmm. or value investor right now, you're toast. Because you look at Apple and it's trading at 40 times earnings, next year's earnings, or Microsoft, it's trading at 35 or 40 times next year's earnings. By most value metrics, that wouldn't qualify. So you're kind of in this, this you're filling your basket with all these businesses that you, if you're talking to your clients about them, they're like, well, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? I don't buy any of that stuff. I want to own what I, what I yeah. use. Why not, why not have just eight stocks in here? Yeah, this is stupid. They've done so well for 12 years. You're, you're clearly not smart. When in reality, that person's pretty well educated. He, he understands the business. I mean, if you look over the last 50 years, value's always done really well. I mean, you look at Berkshire Hathaway and you're like, well, he's got all these other ones. Well, actually, as a percentage of his holding company, Apple is 40 some percent or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't hold me to that, but it's a high percentage of their market cap is based in Apple stock. So this is a long-winded way of me getting to the one thing I want to talk about, which I think leads to the back half of this episode, which is um, the Netflix earnings were really interesting. Uh, we talked a little bit about it last week, and I talked about how they're going to be raising their the cost of Netflix. Right now, which plan are you on? Uh, no ads. No ads. Yep. Top tier 4K? Not for. I don't have that on my... No, not too. not as a choice. As a choice, yeah. So um, Ben Thompson did a really good job the last two weeks talking about um, the challenges at Disney. Mm-hmm. The he thinks that there's a huge opportunity here. Um, Bob Iger just recently came out talking about how the challenges of when he first left five years ago or four years ago when he retired to just be the chairman of the board. He talked about how he left the business. Um, he, he viewed there being a major challenge in t- television and in sports. And a lot of investors are questioning what they're going to do with those assets. And he basically came out and said that they're going to be selling off ABC, all of their, their news networks, if they can't figure out next steps. Mm-hmm. So Ben Thompson then wrote this piece, not just on Disney, but on, on Netflix and what the new dynamic of television is going to turn into. And I think he's probably nailed this. And obviously this coincides with a mass, massive problem with the writer's strike in, in Hollywood. Um, there's a business model problem where it's viewed that Netflix is hoarding all the profits. The writers and actors and people that work in the industry aren't being paid appropriately as a percentage. And he, he dives into not necessarily um, downplaying their gripes and their problems. I think that what he was trying to talk about was that actually as a percentage of revenue um, and on an inflation basis, the percentage of the pie that the actors and writers are getting is higher than it's ever been. So it's not completely justified. However, I think a lot of them, more specifically the, the ones that perhaps aren't on the best shows mm-hmm. or the ones that are maybe not the, um, not yeah, the A-list stuff, the A-list yeah. stuff, they're receiving less and less of the money. And it's largely because of the way in which we're compensated nowadays. Mm-hmm. The wealth accrues to the top 1% and that's what we consume. And if they continue to have this payout of based on performance, well, that's what going to continue to happen and that's going to be a problem so now what am i trying to say here i'm I'm effectively saying that netflix cheap money 
um, the grow at all costs culture of the last 15 years that millennials grew up on where we could, I mean, when we first started going to White Ave, we had to walk home in the, in the snow or take a cab. Then Uber came out and it was free to get home for a while where they would just give you free money and credits. And now they've built into our, our way of life, this I'll Uber there. Same thing happened with Netflix and Airbnb and all of these hyperscale Silicon Valley businesses that were funded by free money. And they're now turning on the profit, uh, the profitability work because they were required to by mm-hmm. the market. But they've also gotten to this, this um, scale where they can demand that from us. So now we have Netflix in a position where they've effect- completely destroyed cable. If you aren't 80, you, you probably view Netflix as being more valuable than your cable subscription. So if that's the case, it's pretty likely that they're now going to, especially with the most recent launch of their ad tier, create a new cable news or new cable uh, bundle. And that bundle is going to be, in my opinion, you're going to have two options. You're going to have ESPN and you're going to have Netflix and you're likely going to do both. And you will then fight between pricing. So now you have, and Netflix already indicated that they're doing this. They're going to be raising costs on the non-ad tier. Mm-hmm. The ad tier is going to stay around seven ninety nine, eight bucks in the United States, whatever, ten or eleven or twelve dollars here. And then our non-ad tier is going to go to thirty, forty, fifty, sixty dollars. And you're going to have to make a, a determination of whether or not you want to be non-ads. You don't want to have commercials or you are comfortable with them at a much lower price. And the reason that is, is because Netflix has to pull a lever to be more profitable. That's just the way that it it works. And they only have three ways of doing that. So they have average revenue per user, or I think they call it ARM Mm -hmm. in in their calls. Mm -hmm. And how do they get to do that if in Europe and in, we'll call it, poorer countries where they have Netflix subscriptions, it's tough to drive revenue growth there. They have user growth, but they don't have the same amount of money, so they can't charge the same amount. Um, So they need to start to push and pull different levers, and that one's going to be ad-based. That is going to be their major focus because there is so much opportunity in the way in which you deliver ads. I mean, Facebook's done this. They're they're running a $130, $140 billion business just on advertising. Netflix would love to be able to do that. Can they? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people spend as much time on Netflix that they do on Instagram. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But my, my belief is, is that there's going to be a $50 a month Disney Plus, and there's going to be a $50 a month Netflix, and there will be nothing else. So I think the interesting piece in, that I'm trying to put together is the, the move to live events for them and how that works with ad space because of course like on any we're watching the, the super bowl the the biggest marketing event for advertisers each year in terms of north american sports so that is if if the super bowl were to move to disney plus for example and that is being on that is going to be li- a live event that you can stream through the platform I think the experience for the user would be no different than what they're having right now, right? Because it's going it's a live event. You're going to have the commercials. You're going to have the, the ad buys that are going to be built into that 
that are now going to be obviously directed right now it's a i'm assuming some kind of relationship between the nfl and either fox or whoever is producing it that year i know it switches each year and that's the relationship so now how is that going to how are they going to move into this into the live event space and structure that through the platform i think i think that's the probably the piece that they're trying to figure out well that's be the hardest to to do i think what they're really worried about though with that is that um they want to they don't want sports to be too powerful so they're always concerned that they will be able to demand massive um annual what what, what do they call it when they go and they negotiate their five-year deal their their rights the rights yeah the rights they don't want to be able to demand that Mm -hmm. and be too important inside of their bundle Mm -hmm. so that's why they want to probably team it with disney and the the cart well they're sweet there where you have pixar you have the disney suite you have marvel you have all of these massive assets they could then at least go back and say no you guys are benefiting from us having this inside of disney plus right really what they're trying to do is is um make it so that sports doesn't stand so tall right because largely the reason why you still subscribe to cable bundle is so that you can watch live sports. There's no way it's for anything else. It's not for HGTV. It's not for all of those things that surround it. The fishing channel, the, for Shark Week, that's not why you have it. It's, sports stands so tall inside of the cable bundle and it demands all of the revenue and everything else is just being dragged along with mm-hmm. it. And while that has been a benefit for a long time, I mean, just think, look at what's happened to 1260 radio in this city. It's not profitable at all. And if it wasn't for large sports um, networks and how much money they generate, none of that would exist. It's really just complimentary for the sake of it, right? It's supposedly just making people enjoy sports more. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's around. Well, and the other piece there is too, is like when you have, that was the, the local radio station that you mentioned, and that's not obviously, it's, it, it just happened in Edmonton, it's, but it, the, we had closures in, across the country no more yeah. than 18 months ago as well. So realistically, I think the only, in this specific example, I think the only one left is Toronto that's actually um, have, has like a local sports radio. Well, our all sports day. radio is all about Toronto anyway, so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Toronto Sports Network. Um, the, the, the piece to that is, I, well, the assumption I can only make is that the success in kind of long form podcasting and even, you know, short form things through different platforms, whether that be, um, you know, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, et cetera, it has to be a small operation in order for it to work and for the economies to scale to work. Obviously at that larger level that some of these radio stations were at, it's all this infrastructure that was in place, all this overhead that was in place that, you can't get around or you can't make you can't make work from the size of a TSN or a Sportsnet for example in this country it's not justifiable but if Joel and Cam were employees of that radio network and then wanted to move off and do a podcast like this and have kind of a smaller operation you can be successful it's all about getting your own your own niche, your own following, and being able to grow your, yourself into something that's sustainable and high margin. And that really wasn't an option for, or is not an option for a lot of these, either you call it radio networks or regional sports networks, whatever it might be, the, the cost benefit is not there. So should we talk about this Ryan Smith 
Yeah, I thought it was kind of an interesting thing. So Ryan Smith, who's... I feel like um, we predicted this was going to happen six months ago. <laughs> well, kind of. It's, it's an interesting take, though, and I think it's very specific to their market. So um, this is kind of diving into the sports side of things a little bit. But uh, Ryan Smith, who I believe was one of the founders of Qualtrics, um, they sold to SAP, I think, back in 2018, I read. Um, I won't get too much into their company specifically, but it's kind of like a platform used to do surveys and collect data and provide analytics to various companies. So either you're, you know, going designing them for your customers or for your employees. And so they can, they have, they had software um, originally, I'm not sure what they've obviously moved to as of today's date, but essentially to, to gather all that data and all that information and provide it in a obviously usable way for, for their customers. So he was on with Jason Kalkanis on uh, his This Week in Startups podcast. And so Ryan Smith, I'm not sure when he acquired the Utah Jazz specifically, but uh, he also has ownership in a couple of their other major sports franchises there. And he's actually... I had first heard his name actually through a hockey podcast because Utah is, or Salt Lake City, sorry, is kind of high up on the list for potential new franchises for the NHL as well. Uh, I didn't really realize this, but Utah is uh, one of the fastest growing states in America, uh, younger demographic, uh, huge hub for for travel as well. So, I mean, in terms of getting in and out of, or getting out of the United States, it's a big hub from a travel perspective. They do have that kind of recreation piece from a tourist perspective as well with their kind of skiing and, and, and resorts that they have in that, in that state. Uh, it's also a, one of the fastest growing tech hubs from my understanding as also well. Only a 4.85% uh, state income tax rate. And so. that would be another attractive thing about there, which I mean, go figure, find me an incentive and an outcome. <laughs> I'll show you an outcome. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they, they are growing, but anyway, so Ryan has, acquired the Utah Jazz and is kind of taking a new spin on how to get their product out to their um, their fan base. So Utah, again, not necessarily known as a big market from a sports perspective. About 3 million people, I think, is what Ryan said in Utah. And then they would also kind of consider Wyoming, Idaho, and maybe parts of Washington as part of their kind of their fan base as it relates to their team specifically and maybe what could be coming down in the future in terms of other sports franchises there isn't a lot of other big markets in their area and so we talked about the regional sport network and the decline of obviously the stability of some of those agreements that were in place with i think we talked about bali sports with a lot of the uh, nhl and mlb and nba franchises and the the issues that that came up in the last year with with them having some bankruptcy issues and whatnot so ryan was kind of talking about how their regional sports network um contract i guess call it was up for renewal ahead of a bunch of others in in the market or in in the league and so they've kind of taken a new a new spin on on how they want to deliver things and they kind of rolled that out for the first time this year and then they're going to have a, a a new platform i guess on a go for basis which for those in in edmonton and oilers fans you, it might sound a little bit similar but um originally their deal was call it 20 million dollars for their regional sports rights and Again, the, the biggest thing that I think we talked about this and I think it makes sense and I think we we understand that, but you sell your rights and as soon as you sell your rights, you kind of lose control, obviously, of the distribution of those, of your product. 
And so sell for $20 million over X number of years. And any dealings that are being had with, with those rights after the fact are with the producers. So with the, whatever the network is, they're going to have essentially final say on how that's being distributed to the masses. And so they were leading or they were noticing that there was essentially decreased viewership as a result of things that were outside of their control. And they said, okay, well, I mean, it's a big revenue hit to not sell our rights. And rather in how Ryan put it is we're going to actually pay for the space. So instead of this being a revenue, it's going to be a cost center all of a sudden. And we're going to, so essentially what they've done is they, they've purchased, they've purchased space on TV. You can connect, uh, you can have your old TV. We're sitting right next to a TV right now. You get an antenna, you go to channel 14. Imagine back in the day, the little dial, when you click over, over to 14, you get the Utah jazz game, whenever it's on. Don't need a cable subscription. Don't need anything else. Just need your antenna, connect, channel 14, Utah Jazz game. So provided free, so available technically to all 3 million people, uh, how he put it, 3 million people in, in Utah. So they went from essentially being in a position where their games were, their regional games that weren't blacked out because of national or whatever, went from about 1 million to 3.1 million households that they could be accessed to. to. Okay. The second piece was creating this online subscription-based service directly through the team. And so the, and the other pros to this, I, I just talked about the lack of control. Now they have all the control. They have control over the sales, the marketing, the production of what's going on and being shown on TV for their regional sports games. So again, if you're a big Utah Jazz fan or if you're not a Utah Jazz fan, it's, still, it's something free that you can obtain. And so that, that, that's what he's obviously, he's not saying this is like the number one idea. This is what we're going to do on a go for basis. It's not going to change. He's just taking a new spin on it. He's like, well, sure. It was like incrementally $20 million of revenue was great from a, a deal perspective, but they're not getting the kind of reach or the growth that they want to their fan base. And they're also not being able to connect with their fans in the same way. Cause they don't get the information from if Joel and Cameron, Utah residents, I have no idea, but you can be watching my game, but I have no idea who you are. As opposed to like the, you talked about the subscription model previously with Disney or Netflix or whatever it might be. What do you have to do to sign up? Provide a contact, provide contact information. They're going to start, yeah. they're going to have a way to you directly. They're going to have a way to uh, upsell you on, on certain products, et cetera. So they've created this and it's from my, from my reading anyways, the, the full rollout of the subscription-based options are going to be directly through the Utah Jazz website. And you're going to be able to set up for, obviously, game access directly. So you can watch on your computer, obviously stream that or take that and put it onto your TV, whatever it might be. Um, and then there's going to continue to be this free option that's available through just basic antenna cable. And so, obviously, this is in the infancy of this kind of model but it's very interesting to me that he's basically he's put a premium on like user growth and trying to obtain as many eyeballs as possible and trying to get as much information out of those out of his his fan base Mm -hmm. and saying that's going to be more profitable in the long run is the more people i can get eyeballs on this getting interested in the sport or getting interested in the team or what they stand for and then being able to promote the team directly rather than through an intermediary. So again, 
hey, we have tickets available for the upcoming games on Saturday and Monday. Email blast, boom, there you go. Here, hey, we're having a deal on on these jersey sales. In fact, all directly from the team, not through an intermediary that I think previously that would all have been um, contacted through. So it, even for Edmonton Oilers, for example, like we have the Oilers Plus that that's kind of the behind the scenes access it's not in relation to actually watching games it's in relation to like additional content for this example it's actually it's all that and there would just be you can watch the games here for x dollars per month and this is where you go to to watch all your regional games so i immediately start to think about what this ends up doing to or how are you supposed to take advantage of the the idea that these teams individually mm-hmm are going to turn what is largely a pretty big profit center for them. Mm-hmm. Like $20 million is not nothing. No. It's one John Collins a year, right? And then you have John Collins is like the highest paid guy for the Jazz, I think. Anyways. No, that's incorrect. He plays for the Atlanta Hawks, but good Did try, Did he get Joel. traded? <laughs> no. <laughs> Joel, always, you always claim to be this huge sports guy. I just looked it don't. up. John Collins, Utah Jazz, number 20, power forward. Okay, maybe. Okay, you're ahead of the game. Anyways, he's one John Collins is what you And he makes 23 him. mil. There you go. Anyways, my point being is that if they're going to turn this into a place where it's now a cost center, as you mentioned, but now they're going to figure out a way in which they can generate more revenue mm-hmm. there. But I view it as an opportunity because let's say the Edmonton Oilers do this or the Calgary Flames or one of the NHL teams in the United States or in Canada starts to think, all right, so our regional sports network has deteriorated. Uh, we no longer have sports radio that I think generates a ton of interest. You have what we have Bob Stoffer left in, in town, which is, I mean, he does a fantastic job. I think but you have one option. Yeah. Yeah. You have 630 Chet, yeah. right? Maybe we need to now start to be content producers beyond what we just put on the ice. Yes. So they've done this with their television show, which I think was the wrong approach because they, that's at least in my opinion, that's not how people are going to be mm-hmm. um, consuming television and media that way. But but yeah. what I'm trying to get to here is now you need to go and find your influencers in the city around sport, bring them in house and start to con- produce content. And I think that's probably where we're going. Well, I think this is I, I think you're probably right. I think this is probably a little bit of a test, too, for them, because, I mean, the example we gave with Ryan Smith, Utah Jazz here, he had the ability to do this because his regional sports network contract was up. So it's like, hey, we're going to try something different. Totally. Yeah. Right now, we're in a position where a lot of sports leagues are in a position where they are in the middle of a contract that cannot be broken. But you are starting to see this rollout of inter- like internally produced content, which may or may not have a good uptick. Like, I don't, we, we all kind of goofed on the Oilers for doing this Oilers Plus thing. Yeah. Um, a little bit. And like, who's going to pay for that? I'm sure people are. And I'm sure they're getting some good information out of it in terms of, again, how long are some, how long are people watching these things? How, when are they clicking off? What do they like? What do they do? What, what do they not like? So that can help form what content they're going to do on a go forward. And then again, when this next contract is up, and I, I think the NHL might be, you know, a different conversation as compared to like the NBA and just in terms of the numbers and the, the scale in which the NBA has grown and has that kind of national piece, which I think like the national um, distribution of, of production is going to fall under what you talked about. It's going to end up being, I think, a partnering with 
one of the big streaming services and that's going to be so like the TNT games and, and whatever it might be that's going to be some, somehow that's going to morph into some kind of platform based subscription model where you have the fifth year as part of your $50 a month or you pay 55 now to have ESPN what happens if Netflix to, starts buying these rights well that and that's what I'm saying but at, at the national level but I think at the at the regional level this is a very interesting take to say okay well we can, if as long as the league still provides you with the ability to have your your own control, the teams their own control over their yeah. regional rights, then this is kind of a f- interesting take to say, okay, for an NBA scales twenty million dollars of revenue from a RSN deal is kind of a drop in the bucket. Yeah, and so well, is this a multi multi billionaire? Is I don't this think 20. <laughs> is this worth investing in to become a cost center for the time being, to hopefully in the long term gain more fans, more eyeballs, etc. Just just by osmosis, and then secondly, how much can we again? We always talk about contr- having control, mm-hmm. having control of their content and their production, rather than it being out of sight, out of mind. Which I'm sure for a long time was awesome. It's like, oh, we don't have to deal with any of this stuff. It's just we've done our d- deal. It's Unfortunately, you have to pay for X, Y, and Z in order to watch your games or sorry, these ones are blacked out or whatever it might be. You now have control over everything that's not at the national level. So again, for the Utah Jazz, a team that would be, it's not the Lakers, it's not the Knicks, it's not these high profile teams. So you don't have 15 to 20 national games where that's again, back to league control. You have all of this. You have a lot higher volume of games that you can now control yourself and control what's coming out of it from a and you can and then, test and then stuff. so and and you can exactly you have the control to t- actually test things out and try it. So I, it was an interesting. Obviously, he's on for a full podcast. So I would uh, that's I guess kind of a recommendation or an early recommendation to listen to that. I thought it was quite interesting. And obviously, his background in kind of the tech space and. Um, starting a company and from, from nothing and, and, and creating something is, is obviously unique because he's kind of bringing some of his, um, he's truly focused on how do I grow my, my market share and my, and my business. And he's not one of the owners that is um, necessarily uh, super interested in, in the day-to-day basketball operations. He's done a, obviously the job to say, hey, I'm going to delegate this out. I'm still obviously going to be involved and I want to understand but I'm going to really focus on, hey, how do I take this quote-unquote small market team, which is in an area that we see a lot of potential in in terms of growth in the state and the, and the city, et cetera, and how do I you know, benefit from that? And the best way to benefit from that, what he's, I think he's saying, is they have the control over what they are putting out there and what they're producing. And I, I was just looking up on the map because I had to make sure mm-hmm. I knew where Utah was. Mm-hmm. It actually – that's – that would be really high on my list of a place to move to, and I think it would be just a nicer, warmer version of Edmonton. It's directly north of Arizona, east of Nevada. So it's it's fairly close or in line weather-wise with two pretty warm places. When you got I was the surprised. Mountains I thought there. it was further north. It's yeah. not. The Utah Jazz, it, when I think about it, it, it makes me think it's cold and, it's, and I, I'm going skiing. When it's well, they, yeah, they do have the Rocky Mountains there, but yeah, it's an interesting. I, a lot of the tidbits about Utah and, and Salt Lake City, I was not aware of. So, uh, and it was interesting little podcast listen, and obviously the little spin between business and sports there was obviously caught my enough eye. to get you yeah. to, to listen. Yeah. So um, let's take a spin quick here to Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah, let's do it. I've seen neither. 
Which how is, many, like, the memes that were out of that last week, everybody posting. So that's what I want to talk about <laughs> a little bit. And it's, it's um, uh, Eric Sufert, who is another person that I've mentioned multiple times on this podcast. But for anybody who wants to better understand internet advertising and marketing budgets and how these large tech companies make their money, how they're likely going to strategize on the way f- on, on a go forward. But more importantly, I think what he was talking about this week was the strategy that TikTok has taken on, how they have a, a billion dollar user acquisition plan. Mm-hmm. But what was more interesting was the number in which he talked about and how much was spent with Barbie and the way in which they've... So apparently they had $150 million opening week um, awareness budget. That is <laughs> huge. <laughs> Apparently that was larger than what it cost to produce the movie itself, mm. which is interesting because you have on one hand, you have a writer's strike. And then in another one, you have networks or um, these businesses that are who, who produced Barbie. Do you remember? Do you know? like Paramount or something. I don't know. The distributor was Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Okay. Yeah. It was willing to spend $150 million in marketing to build up this tentpole project for themselves. And it worked. It was all the rage. But it hasn't particularly worked for TikTok, whose growth has largely stagnated. It's kind of reached its, stagna- or its saturation point. Um, but I thought it was interesting, mostly, when you looked at the states by which the popularity of each individual movie was largest. Right. So when you paint a map of the United States and you have each individual state on its own, yeah, so and then you have do a, that graphic of yeah, yeah so Oppenheimer a, or Barbie. Yeah, so plus yeah. 20 would be um, blue, and okay. it would be Oppenheimer. And then minus 20 would be red or pink and Barbie. If you were to just think which states... Okay. Would be the fan, would have gone to Barbie more likely than others. What would you classify California? Yeah, Barbie. So you would think that Barbie would be more popular than Oppenheimer in California? I'd assume. New York State. Barbie. Okay, this is really fun. Arkansas. (laughs) Barbie. Florida. I'm going to say Barbie for every single one because it was... Utah. (laughs) I'll say Oppenheimer for Utah. So if you go and you look at the, the heat map, yeah. Oppenheimer was more popular in 40 states. But the most populous states. But the most Republican states were the heaviest Barbie watchers. Interesting. Which blew my mind. Oppenheimer was more popular in California, New York, Portland, almost all through northern United States. When you went down to south around the... the, the um, the Arkansas, yep. the the Tennessees, Florida, Texas, all of them went to Barbie. Okay, but but Barbie definitely. I have a few things here. Like, and this is, I guess, um, for context, this is stats as of July twenty third. So like, yeah, immediately change. after. Yeah. But uh, so this was a, a little. I was gonna say tweet thread X thread. <laughs> That's not even. We'll get into that, that later. <laughs> uh, from Jonathan MB32. Just want to give him credit because he kind of summarized all this. Um, Barbie, 155 million gross. Oppenheimer, 80.5 million gross over the first, I guess, call it three days. And I, I believe this would all have been obviously American based. Yep. 
uh, information. So you consider that almost double for Barbie, which makes sense in this, like from the standpoint that Oppenheimer is an R-rated movie, definitely a more you know a historical biopic that kind of thing. You're never going to have the same kind of no. level of success. Which I I can get into some comparables from from the Oppenheimer perspective, but the the fact that you just said that obviously Oppenheimer is more more popular in a higher number of states but in the states in which barbie was more popular obviously that many more people they went were to huge it. yeah yeah and those are larger populous so states. more of a split potentially Probably. in those other ones yeah it is it because that that was always that was the on which i think barbie made you talked about the commitment to the marketing campaign ahead of opening I think they benefited so much by going head to head with Oppenheimer too. Oh, it was perfect because like the viralness of like, the fact that they're just so, so obviously so starkly different. I think what the Barbie movie, I haven't seen but it. So but so similar. Well, what, what I mean is like, I think there is probably more to that Barbie movie than what would be, what you would think first blush. Like I don't think the Apparently, previews necessarily. My wife went to it on Sunday and um, she said that it was deeper than she was expecting it to be. Well, so. I, I think when you have two kind of A-list actors that are, I mean, they they have some, both of those like Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling have range. Like they have, they're not, yeah. they're, they're not, not known for doing um, vanity roles. No, exactly. So, a uh, couple, just a couple more stats. So this was the first time in box office, office history that two movies opened to over eighty million dollars each. It's only the fourth time that two movies opened to over fifty million dollars each, and the first time that it's happened in a decade. The Our other one that back. kind of, yeah, well, see, this is the thing though, at this, you're not going to, I, I was reading some of these, of the movies that are on this list. And it's like, you obviously just get to the, the point where the, the vanity movies aren't going to play anymore in box. Like it's gotta be these nostalgic or these massive events where Again, that, that's what they're making them. They're making them events by putting so much money into the marketing. Whereas before, I think a lot of the times it was just about, hey, we can if we just get this into the movie theater, people are going to go because that's what people do. Yeah, they go to the movie theater and they're going to say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to the movies yeah. this week. I'm going to the movies next week. I'll see it next week. And they're going to get that money eventually. Because not anymore, right? That's not a part of our society. Like, it's not we, part of the fabric anymore at all. No, no. We don't. I used to go to a movie every two weeks when I was a kid. 100%. And now I haven't been to one in four years. So yeah, part of that's us having kids. But, sure. 100%. But for sure, it's, never sit through it's just never talked about I, the amount of Cineplex Odeon gift cards that I have that are just burning a hole in my pocket. But it's, <laughs> I, I think it is something that is becoming the, the most the most popular ones going forward and what we're going to spend our money on are the ones that are going to be thrown in our face. There's going to be such a big budget behind it. That so it's what are these, be. what are these massive boxes called movie theaters do about it? Because they used to make their money on volume. Yes. How, how can you possibly return? Probably can't. So that square footage is, is impaired forever as a, as a value. Yeah, well, I, I think the ones that where you see like the, the quote unquote VIP theaters are the ones with having the most success. So again, they're marketing to have an experience when you go where yeah. it's the smaller theaters or smaller volume in terms of seats where it's more comfortable. You can have a meal there, you can have a beer there, a glass of wine. Those are the ones in at least through the scuttlebutt of listening to our peer group and people in my network. That's like when they talk about movies, that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about Ooh, going fancy. to the old theater well and but it's not it's even when you think about wallet spend from that standpoint if you're not going to three movies a month like people used to 
the fact that a movie costs $22 to go to or $25 to go to to have this experience rather than eight or whatever it might be. Well, if you're going to one. Because you're getting drinks. Well, sure. Food. But I mean, again, it's a, it's a night. It's a one night out, I sure. think. And yeah. it's, so that's where I think the focus would be. But to your point, they have all this existing infrastructure and potentially, you know, <laughs> leases and whatnot. So when those are up, I can see obviously there being a huge, uh-oh, a huge uh-oh moment and a huge cut down and a huge problem for mall space, I guess you could call it. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure what the, the Grameesians and the West Edmonton Mall and how they've been able to continue to demand the, 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 the lease costs and the, the per square footage space. I think they have something special there in terms of what that asset is in Edmonton specifically. Mm-hmm. But when you start to think about where all of these theaters are, how many we have, it's possible that we have too many. We have one in our small town that we live in um, of 150,000 people, and it's not full. So I don't know where that goes. I'm interested to do this. I would love to sit down across from somebody. Like if we could get a third person in here Mm -hmm. who has a ton of knowledge about square footage, how it's the economics around it, revenue that needs to be driven from um, the store to justify the cost um, because theaters themselves are insane. There's what, at our mall, local mall for 150,000 people, residents, there's a theater that has eight theaters in it. Yeah, it might be eight to 10. Eight yeah. to 10. Yeah. And I can't even name 10 movies that have gone out in the last 10 year, in the last right. year, let alone go to, there'd be that many options when you show up on Saturday night. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I wonder if the option too is like, okay, well, how, how many of these do we select in, again, maybe we're oversaturated in certain markets, but how, what's our, what's the, what's the right number of theaters to have? And then how do we, do we refurbish these to then create more of rather than having 10, do we have six and like theaters kind of thing? And then what else can we add to the experience here at our theater? That's going to make it the longevity of it makes sense. Have no idea. It's going to be very, very interesting question for them to answer because there's obviously examples of this with Barbie and Oppenheimer. And there's going to be, there's going to continue to be these types of movies on a go forward basis not to mention just this year and there's going to be money to be made by having that product being able to be shown at your theaters as long as there's an agreement obviously between the the distributors of these movies and the theaters themselves so where is that happy or where is that where is their meat in the middle point in terms of creating something seems like a huge mountain to climb but I don't think they're they're not going any. I don't think there's. We're always going to have that option to I think go to the. Movie I think we theater. should. It's just it's just going to be what what that looks like. And I again, like I said, I, I think the for in my circles, anyways, talking to people, it's it's it is going to those more unique kind of theaters, VIP theater experiences, which people are enjoying more. Yeah, completely. I think that's where we're going. We should get somebody on here. I got to find an expert in this space that maybe a like a, a broker who sells um, mall space. But I'd be interested in, in getting a better understanding of how that's all, how the math works on that. Uh, it's easy for me to understand industrial real estate because it's just like a massive box, and I can I can easily understand that. Whereas mm-hmm. there's way more nuance to uh, the shopping centers, right? Totally. So um, I don't know where you want to head to next. I don't want to talk about X and Twitter. No, I was just gonna. They, it's so dumb. I had, I had two quick sports things I wanted to to talk about briefly, okay. and I think it was. 
number one, the we talked about uh, Messi signing with Inter Miami in the MLS, and hit as part of his uh, part of his deal coming over. It was he's getting a piece of essentially options in terms of I think ownership in an MLS club, likely Inter Miami or one of his choosing on a go for basis, as well as a piece of the subscription revenues on a go. For, I mean, I'm assuming the the growth in subscription revenues on a go for basis through Apple. And that's who MLS's agreement is with. And so obviously there's no early returns right now necessarily on on the number of subscription ads. I would think it's high. Like One thing I didn't consider that I was listening to uh, another podcast talking about was the fact that Messi's from Argentina. This is going to be the first time where he's going to be playing kind of primetime games oh, in his smart. national country. So how much are they adding from South America, for mm-hmm. example? That might be a huge a huge piece, but he started off and he has gone. He he came on. He did not start the first game, but came on in the second half and scored the winning goal in the dying minutes, of course, on a free kick. And then his second game, he scored two goals and assisted another. So the conversation that I thought was interesting around it was whether or not him coming is ba- could potentially be bad for the sport to a degree, in the sense that hey, this guy's thirty eight years old and he's ripping our league apart and. He is the only focal point, which is, again, for I'm not an MLS historian, but I'm sure some people follow football quite closely, uh, potentially here in, the, in, in North America that listen to this podcast. And you've seen this example before, like Beckham comes over and, and kind of lights the league on fire for the first bit. And uh, Zoltan even Ibrahimovic comes over and he lights the league on fire. And these guys are all at the back end of their careers and they're playing against, quote unquote, lesser talent here in the MLS. So it's like the long-term effect is for them I'm, I'm assuming is to get obviously more eyeballs and uh subscriptions to the service here in north america for people following the sport so i think you can players. still i think you can still fall in love with the sport locally or with your own brand even if it's a inferior product compared to the best in the world it's just that's kind of a new concept for north america because yeah, everything in north america the is the players right so i think that's something that's like slowly growing but like there's plenty of leagues across the world that are viewed as quote-unquote lesser leagues that are still very successful are they to the same degree as the Manchester united's and the real madrid's and and the psg's etc no but they can still be very very successful and still work their way up the ladder to become a more prominent league. And I think having Messi here is just an amazing marketing play. People are anytime that over the next couple of years where how, how much longer he plays, he's going to come to every city in North America that has an MLS team. And that's going to be a huge draw. And so I think it's great for the league and you're already seeing dividend. He's, he's holding up his end of the bargain already creating all these dramatics. So I can't wait to see the returns on the subscription service ads that they have in, in the MLS and where that is concentrated. So whether or not that actually has the uptick that they want directly in call it Canada and the U S and then how much of that is coming from South America and their diehard fans of, of Messi from, you know, Argentina and and surrounding areas. Um, I'll dovetail that into the discussion on Kylian Mbappe is also football news. So that was kind of went viral the last few days in terms of his offer from the Saudi. So we've, we've talked a lot on this podcast about Saudi Arabia's, I guess, mission through their, um, through the PIL, I believe, sorry, yeah, uh, private investment. They're killing an Mbappe, for those who don't know, is essentially the next Messi, if you want to call it that way, in terms of his his projected dominance. He's already, he's 23 years old, and he's already kind of won everything that he could win. 
has by and large the pound for pound best football player in the world right now or at least arguably he's not the biggest in terms of if you were to bring Mbappe over to North America, I, Messi plays more. Ronaldo plays more in relation to that from the marketing standpoint. I'm going to mention one thing quickly. Why do soccer players, football players, have the best names? Kylian Mbappe. Yeah, that is. Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> Zoltan. It does seem like they have. They're it's, fake. Like an, it's like an actor. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, you need to change your name. <laughs> but um, anyways, he the it was widely spread that he was offered 776 million dollars to play one year in Saudi Arabia for the Al-Hawal team I believe is the name of the of the club and so much like their investments into live and kind of the the mission statement around it is obviously to to grow their prominence in various levels of sports so for football it's they apparently their goal is to become a top 10 league in terms of attracting talent Okay. And so, obviously, how do you make a bigger wave than getting the best football player in the world? How do you try to get them? I'm assuming offering them $776 million. So, essentially, uh, double the value of the Arizona Coyotes uh, in one year's worth of salary for for one player. Now, it leaked out or became more clear that that 776 is very contingent. I guess the base salary would be only quote unquote, $221 million. And then there would be a bunch of things that obviously we don't know the details of, of what he would have to do to earn the other $500 million. And what's to say this is a one year deal. What's to say that uh, he's not offered the same thing in perpetuity in order to keep him in Saudi Arabia and grow the game, et cetera. Now, There's no way they could do that, I don't think. Well, I don't think so either. But they're trying to make a wave and make this, obviously, the the signing of Cristiano Ronaldo to Saudi Arabia is one thing, again, from the marketing piece. But he's not he's not the, the marquee in his prime type player that you would – ideally want in your league to create the I think the the attraction that they want now it's already been reported as of last night that he has rejected meeting with them now the world of football is like a soap opera if you re, if you just search his name you will find respected outlets I would say news outlets uh, all over the globe saying he's coming here oh now he's going to come here oh he's going to Chelsea oh he's going to go to Manchester United oh he's going to go here right the consensus is that he's already come to some kind of agreement with Real Madrid, and that's kind of the one of the meccas of football. So if you want to say from a legacy play standpoint, if you're a player, uh, playing for that team would be viewed as kind of the creme de la creme. They had kind of fallen off in, in recent years because they've had to sell off some of their players and had some, I think, financial issues. However, that is still, again, the cream of the crop when it comes to um, international football and a team to play for. And as well as the fact that he likely, again, like being a competitive athlete in his prime, he wants to play against the best and be against the best all the time. And so could Saudi Arabia's league get there at some point where they have teams that are playing in the champions league and, uh, et cetera. Yes, but it's, it's going to be a slow build and they're trying to take this, they're trying to speed things up 10 years by making these kind of deals. And I don't think it's going to going to work overnight and that's not going to be the way that investment works i think for them i think soccer is incredibly difficult to, to well and the, mo- to. the money scale in comparison to like starting a golf league and having it's the independ- not even in it's the same even, it's, it's not even the same ballpark it's crazy golf is so easy compared to soccer there's i think that even they aren't rich enough to take on soccer <laughs> i think soccer has more money and would 
No, well, this, and you know, I'd be probably taking this too, too far. You know what's funny? It's the the rhetoric too is funny because there was a couple of executives quoted. I won't be able to say their exact. I don't remember their exact name, so I'm not going to say them. But a couple of executives quoted from other big teams, and essentially they're just saying, "Yeah, you know what? Saudi Arabia teams have as much right as we do to sign players, and so if they want to do it, they can. If they have ambition to become a big league, they can." You know what that screams to me? They could care less, and they know that people aren't going to go there that are of prominence than that matter. Yeah. Whereas the reaction from the PGA originally was obviously like, oh, no, they can't do it. We're going to ban our players from going, et cetera. It's because they saw that as a legitimate risk immediately. Yeah. So that's why you can see the difference in, in rhetoric and the commentary coming out of this. It's Team sports is way harder to, to do this to, too, I think, in oh, many ways. 100%. Also, it is on a whole nother scale. Like You're taking on the largest sport in the world for – Versus golf, which is like a niche, yeah, which tiny, was which was a way better investment to make. Mbappe is going to make more money on this deal than the revenue generated by the PGA Tour. <laughs> so, which he's not taking, to be fair, right. as it stands currently. But that just to put it in perspective. So, Cam, I think we're we're hitting our, our time limit today. I have a recommendation, and that is to go to our newsletter and check out my. Um, long form writing and podcast lists. Yes, here. it's very extensive this week. Lots. I think for the finally for my life has finally cooled off a little bit, and I was able to consume some content, um, sit back and and uh, learn a little bit. Yeah, Joel's even put the like the minutes that you should be starting to <laughs> yeah. listen to stuff. So that so is done for you. Tune into that. By the way, <laughs> I know that's great. Um, well, no, there's like a new AI that just tells you. Oh, don't say that. It sounds smarter. You put effort in. I totally, I didn't. But anyways, believe that if you want to. Um, Yeah, give it, take a look at that. I think that would be my recommendation for the week. Cam, do you have one? I think I gave it that that podcast listen with uh, Cal Canis and Ryan Smith for those who kind of like the the business of sport. I think that was an interesting listen and especially coming from a an owner from a a relatively new owner and and a young owner and someone who is taking a different spin on kind of running his business and running the sport. I got I have to add this in because it was the best venture capitalist podcast I've listened to in three years. And it was uh, Josh Krishner on, on Invest Like the Best was in, interviewed by Patrick O'Shaughnessy. He founded um, Thrive Capital, which is quickly becoming one of the largest and most successful venture capital firms in the world. They just recently, um, and they're also small. They have an 11-person team, and they run something to the tune of 4 or $5 billion. And... No, it's larger than that, 14 billion. Pennies. So this guy started this firm at 25 years old. He's now 30-something. It's really making me think how unsuccessful I am in comparison. But his his interview style, he was obviously methodical. You can tell why he's successful. But if you can get past the fact that he sounds like a robot and listen to what he's (laughs) saying, the way that he answers things so clearly, concisely, but then speaks to his unique approach to investing specifically i just i sent it to my brothers and i was like you have to listen to this guy um and i think that anybody listening would get a lot out of it it's well worth the uh the hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes that it might take really good otherwise cam see you maybe wednesday to friday next week (laughs) yeah sounds good thanks for the recommendations joel see you next week